Hi, everybody. Gatsad here. Another great guest for you today, Nikolai Senels, a Danish criminal psychologist. Lovely to have you here. How are you doing, Nikolai? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me here. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. Uh, so Very I, interested. Looking forward to talking with you. Oh, likewise. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think much of what we'll do today is probably discuss some of the important points that you raise in your book. Uh, among criminal Muslims, a psychologist experiences from Copenhagen Municipality, the Free Press Society 2009, and you've since written several articles that take key points from your book and sort of expands on them. Uh, so maybe we could start first, uh, so to, to contextualize who you are, give us a sense of your professional background. Well, I'm a, I'm a licensed, licensed psychologist from Denmark. I've been working with uh, youths for 12 years now, uh, in mainly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, all the time actually, except for a short period in, in, in the army as an army psychologist. And yeah, my book is based on my work with Muslims in a prison. Right. So so I guess one of the key issues that, that's come up in your work is that there is a clear difference in mindset between the Muslim criminals with whom you interact and the non-Muslim criminals. And you sort of develop a set of enabling factors... I that can explain why some of these differences arise. But before we do that, I thought that I would uh, quote some of the stats that, that you uh, cite, uh, again, to contextualize the issue for us. So Muslims comprise, depending on the uh, estimate, uh, between 3.7 and 4.8% of the Danish population. Uh, now, 70% of youths, uh, youth inmates in Danish prisons are Muslims. So a extraordinarily overrepresentation, and then uh, the top eight nationalities of criminals in Denmark stem from immigrants from Islamic countries. Now, if one is a, before we get into the, the meat of our discussion, if one were a Western apologist, uh, their argument would be, well, clearly this demonstrates that the Danes are a bunch of racist bigots because they're creating an environment where the poor, hapless, Muslim immigrants can't flourish. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the the the, the last statistics you mentioned uh, that that concludes that uh, the top eight uh, the top eight countries uh, are Islamic countries. Number nine, I think, is Thailand or Vietnam, and number ten is is Danes. It actually these statistics are adjusted for socioeconomic factors. So. You cannot really make that blame the make Danish that. society, but whatever that is in the Danish society, the statistics has, uh, have been adjusted for that. So therefore, th this what, in a sense, gives greater credence to your then arguments that there are some, as you call them, enabling factors that create this huge yeah. disparity yeah. in criminality. There's a lot of uh, sociologic uh, and, and uh, psychological research on terrorism, on um, yeah, on, on crime and so on, and it appears that when it comes to at least when it comes to Islamic terrorists, uh, education and economy, like private economy, does not play any role. It does not having a less education, less money, does not make uh, Muslims more prone to commit terror. In fact, it may be the opposite. Well, as a matter of fact, I I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the only f uh, significant factor that I could find uh, uh, is found by some German, some German scientists from, from a, South, a South German university. Actually, the leader of the experiment was former justice minister uh, in, in, in Germany. And it's a huge, huge research project. It's based on uh, deep, deep interviews, depth interviews with uh, 45,000 uh, young people, and the conclusion there is that Islam is the only religion where people become more violent, the stronger their the, their faith is. Right, right. So, so that seems to be the the, the main factor for for committing terror, doing terrorism is the more religious you are as a Muslim. Right, and to go back to your earlier point about the the, the supposed links between poverty and lack of education and terrorism. As a matter of fact, there have been very serious studies that have completely rejected that link. And if anything, we know many, that... Many exactly. And we know that most of the top terrorists, if anything, 
are supremely educated. They're physicians, they're engineers, they're PhDs, they're MBAs. So it certainly does not seem to, the data does not bear out that particular narrative. So let's let's start with some of the key enabling factors that you argue, uh, you know, create this difference in criminality between Muslims and non-Muslims. So let's go with each and then I'll ask you to comment. And of course, I'll jump in uh, through the discussion. So first you talk about Anger versus weakness. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it's it's a good question. Thanks for asking. And yeah, it's um, yeah. When you meet when you meet Muslims as a psychologist, as a, in you know when you when you work with people, you will yeah in general you will find out that people from different cultures react differently to the situation of being, you know, meeting a psychologist, being in therapy and so on. And, and of course, having many people from a specific culture gives a very, as a psychologist, gives a very unique chance to really get to know the mindset that, uh, that this culture and in, in this case also religion uh, creates. And, and uh, one of the things you would naturally work with when you work with criminals is, of course, anger and aggression and violence and so on. <clears throat> and here, one of the things that I found uh, is that while non-Muslims are, know that anger and aggression is, is bad, uh, they, they know that it's a way of losing social status. They know that it's like a sign of losing control of your of your inner states, your emotions, and so on. And in that sense, it's a sign of weakness. And that's why it's, it's, it's relatively easy to work with non-Muslims when you, when, if you want to work with anger, because they know from kindergarten, from their culture, from their upbringing, from school, and from society, and so on, that anger in general is, is a sign of, of weakness and something that, yeah, that you, you would lose social status. Everybody knows it. If you have a burst of anger at the... Christmas dinner at, uh, at your work or the family meeting or something like that. And the next next week you will have to speak, you know, extra polite and friendly in order to regain your to regain people's trust and so on <clears throat> and your own status and social status. And here with Muslims, it's completely opposite, um, where where anger is seen as a sign of strength, partly because it shows that you are ready and not afraid to face physical confrontation right. to, 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 to be right and to win the argument. Um, well, there's an expression. There's an expression. I don't know if you know it. Might is right, right? So if I am yeah. stronger than you, therefore I am right. And so there are very clear hierarchies in the context yeah. of the Middle East, right? Uh, men stronger than women, older, stronger than younger, Children are at the bottom of the hierarchy, humans stronger than animals. So all the relationships are based on hierarchical dominance, hier right? dominance hierarchies that are reinforced. So anyways, go on. Yeah, 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 but it's, 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 it's very true. And that's why it's so difficult to, yeah, to, to, meet, a, uh, to meet a Muslim client with, with our normal Western understanding of aggression and anger and so on. And that's also why there's a great amount of misunderstanding uh, between the meeting of the two cultures, Western culture and uh, Islamic culture or Muslim culture, where we would see their anger as weakness, and therefore we would, we would need to protect them against uh, uh, getting insulted, getting too challenged, getting criticized, and so on. So we hold back with that. And they see our lack of aggression as weakness right and seeing right. from their side that's something that uh, not for, for everybody of course and i would like to stress that in general for the whole interview i'm not talking about all muslims uh, i'm talking about um muslims who are under strong influence from from islamic culture right which most muslims are but seeing from their seeing from their point of view our lack of willingness to express, you know, face physical confrontation, express anger, so is seen as a weakness that can be exploited and which is exploited. Well, and it's interesting because I think the current times that we live in is, is really the perfect storm in that the West has so learned to sublimate its otherwise Darwinian instinct to sometimes get angry, to sometimes seek revenge, right? I mean, I mean, while you are correct, of course, that 
you know, part of being sort of an enlightened person is to know how to dialogue through conflict and not jump to anger. But we also have the emotional apparatus for anger because it serves a evolutionary purpose, right? But I think what's happened in the West now is that there is nothing that can compel sort of Western man to ever retaliate, to ever be angry. He always has to be sort of, uh, I hate to say it, but a castrato, right? He's, he's, a, he's a eunuch, he's castrated, he's gotta be gentle, he's gotta go into a fetal position. He has to cry. He has to be understanding. And then you have another culture that despises those traits. And so it creates a perfect storm uh, for the problems that we are seeing, correct? Yeah, I completely agree. It was one, uh, we, uh, we, saw the, we saw the rape epidemic in, in around New Year. It's still, I assume it's still going on, but sort of not news anymore, so we don't hear so much about it. Uh, but one uh, Danish uh, liberal politician said that actually what happened there, what you see uh, with these mass rapes, they have an Arab word for it, I forgot what it is, Tarakush or something yeah. like that. Tarush, uh, Tarush. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. you get it right. Yeah. And he said, actually, and it was a female politician, and he said, actually, it may not be so much because they lack respect for our women, but because they lack respect for our men. Right. And I think that's there's some truth in that. Right. I mean, I'm not. Uh, I'm not uh, talking saying that we should all become vigilantes and so on. But I think there's some truth in it. Right. I mean, I I, I often talk about just uh, informally about the fact that you know, human history is shaped by Group A wanting to get the women of Group B. But what's stopping them is that there are men in Group B that are not very pleased with that possibility. And so the only <laughs> the only thing that keeps you know things in check is that there are men of all different cultures and backgrounds that are willing to defend uh, their rights, their women, their children, their property. And so what somehow has happened in the West is that those traits have become uncivilized. They're barbaric. And so it doesn't matter how much you instigate possible conflicts, we should find a way to negotiate, to be gentle, to understand the other, to have theory of mind about the other. But the reality is that there comes a point where conflicts will arise. And frankly, the way that things are going, I, I will imagine that at some point, Western man will wake up and it won't be pretty. Yeah, I think you're very right. I think that's actually what's happening right now in many places in the Middle East where the Christian women, Yazidi women and so on are kidnapped and used like that. And right. I think it's happening right now. And, and now this, this culture is now coming to our countries and we, we will also have to learn, like, like as you say, we will have to learn and to adapt and to handle the situation. Right. So, okay, so we've got this difference between uh, what is perceived as a nice set of values, one of which is the expression or suppression of anger. Let's move on to the next one. Uh, honor versus insecurity, uh, which you link to self-confidence. Uh, and I've, I've written about this before you answer. I've written about this, the idea of cultures of honors and shame, which is endemic in the context of the Middle East. Now, of course, part of it is driven by religion, but part of it is also just because of tribal society, because I've also seen this idea of honor in Middle Eastern Christians or Jews. So while it is certainly specific to Islam, it is not only linked to Islam. But anyways, tell us about this second enabling factor. Yeah, but um, I'm sure you're right. It's not, not limited to Islamic cultures. You also see it in South Europe, which by the most likely, that's what I hear from, from historians, that actually it was this culture of being a macho and having this macho honor and so on actually wasn't there from from, yeah, it's not actually a European, but it was imported by the Muslim invasions. Mm. Came, uh, so that's how it ended up. Yeah, I, I don't know, but that's what I've been told. But but, uh, but you see it everywhere. Whoever has this culture of honor, on the one hand, okay, they can be very assertive, very strong in in like uh, showing what they like, what they don't like, what they want, and so on. But they also become uh, most uh, most cases very fragile. Right. Because if, if you if you insult me, if you make a slight that attacks my honor, I am going to respond typically through violence, correct? Yeah, or at least threats, threats of violence. Right. And and here we would say in, in most Western countries uh, that that um, being made, being criticized. A sign of self-confidence and honorable behavior would be to be able to, A, either handle the, if the 
if it's a criticism is true, if it's true what you're criticized about it, you have to change yourself. You would say, thank you for helping me to become a better person. Or if it's not true, you would say, well, you know, that's your opinion, but it's not my opinion, but we can still be friends. Okay. And, and that's seen as, you know, that's honorable. That's a sign of you're secure, you're resting yourself, you're strong, you're secure, you know, you, it's an honorable sign of honorable behavior. And as we all know from, yeah, from Islamic culture, it's completely opposite. They're there. You, you are expected to eliminate criticism. And here it's not a question about being able to, uh, to use the right arguments and, and logic and, and reason and compromise and so on. But it's, as you say here, what do you say? Might is... Might is right. Might, yeah, might is right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's just a matter of, of who, is, who, who can uh, make the other one shut up. Right. Basically. Uh, yeah, and... And this is this is what's happening all the time now, everywhere with newspapers censoring themselves, you know, artists censoring themselves, psychology, most psychologists censoring themselves, even though they actually know what's going on, and so because they're afraid of either hurting other people's feeling or you know having uh, unpleasant consequences. Well, I mean, let, let's let's link it to to another context. I mean, when you when you're a scientist and you send your paper for peer review, you know, you work on a paper for years. And then you send it to a journal. And then basically, it doesn't matter how great a scientist you are, you're likely to have a rejection of your paper. Some of the top journals have rejection rates of, you know, 90, 95%. And if it's not rejected, you're going to get a brutal set of criticisms from reviewers. And so it is built into the system of science that you're the most important part of your daily life. I mean, other than your family, your work, everything that you do is related to your work is going to have a set of judges that are going to trash it in a thousand different ways. And that's how you end up with better knowledge, better science, because you because it's going through uh, the judging eyes of many people. Now, imagine if every time uh, somebody were to criticize my work, whether through the peer review process or just publicly, uh, I started, you know, threatening them and I'm going to be behead you and so on the system wouldn't work very well and so in this no. case right so anyway so comment on that if you if you'd like yeah yeah uh, it's, and that's how i i'm i'm a psychologist i'm not a archaeologist or historian but i'm i'm quite sure that this is why our western culture evolves so so beautifully right uh, we, because we allow the competition of ideas it's a it's a free market right the best uh, usually the best idea will somehow be more convincing to most people in a democracy yeah. and they will be most con- attractive to most people in a democracy and that will then win but if you have another culture another system another religion that does not allow the the, the free competition of ideas because there's only one religion there's only one set of beliefs and so on then you will never have that competition and you will never evolve and that's why you today you can you can walk into many mosques you can walk into many Homes or, or parallel societies, not just in the Middle East, but even here, you know, in Canada and Denmark and so on. And it will be more or less like a time travel 1,400 years back in time where you can see how they lived there, how they treated their families, their women, the subject like free speech and so on. Right? And so, so, so I completely agree. And it's, it's all about the, 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 the freedom of speech, actually, because the freedom of speech allows the free competition of ideas. Well, and and going to your point about self-confidence, if you are confident about your set of beliefs, then then you don't mind having them put to the scrutiny, right? I mean, if 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 your beliefs are superior, then they should be I mean, imagine if I am a boxer and I say, "Well, I am the world champion, but I'm unwilling to ever step into a ring and fight anybody else. Because if you ask me to fight with anybody else, that's an insult on my claiming that I'm the champion. So I will continue to say that I'm the champion without ever fighting. No, you have to get into the ring and you prove that you're the champion. So that's that's what makes our, our, our system, whether it be freedom of speech in the context of politics or whether it be in the way that the scientific method operates or whether it be economic, all of these freedoms... Is preci- I mean, there's nothing in the water in the West that makes it, quote, a superior society. It's precisely because we have found, right, the means by which to create environments. I mean, by the way, Darwinian environments, right? The idea of having different ideas compete with one another is part of a field called evolutionary epistemology, right? So, uh-huh. th- so that's what makes our, 
our cultures and society so great. So if you refuse to allow for this debate to take place, you are actually saying that you are very insecure about your beliefs, correct? Yeah, yeah that's, and that's where we come back to the self-confidence and so on. But some people would say, uh, you hurt my honor, but I'm sorry to say, but as a Western school psychologist, I would say you have a low self-confidence. <laughs> right, all right. So anger versus weakness, self-confidence, honor versus insecurity. Let's go on to the third one, victim mentality versus personal responsibility. Uh, so being responsible for one's action. And I think you link it to locus of control. So t- tell us this whole thing. Explain it to us. Yeah, let me first explain what locus of control means. Yeah. It's a term that we use, uh, in, especially in, in the science of psychology, where and locus of control defines how people experience their lives. Some people experience it as being mainly shaped and decided and and directed from outer factors and and some more just experience it more as being decided by inner factors by their own choices their own way of handling their experiences their emotions and so on and in western culture in general we have we are generally raised with inner locus of control we are taught that we are the main responsibility for whatever happens in our life okay you may get a meteor on your head that's bad luck but but in general, you would say that if okay, if you have problems in your relationship, at work, you know, with the economy or whatever, you would in general be advised to look at yourself and how you handle your own life. And that's why we have people like uh, psychologists, <laughs> it's a whole industry helping people to look look at that. We have, you know, you go to any train station, you see hundreds of, of magazines for men and women telling you how you yourself uh, can gain control of your life. Uh, yourself so we taught that and 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 uh, and that means also that we feel responsible for our lives uh, some i would say may have a tendency to to go overboard with this they will start to feel guilty and not only guilty for what happening on in their own life but also what happens for others uh, and we can get back to that but but when it comes to islamic culture what i my findings uh, is that um, yeah, they're taught, they're raised with an understanding that life is created by outer factors. Ultimately, everything happens, inshallah, as a, uh, if they are willing. So, yeah, insha- so let me just yeah. pronounce it. Yeah. So, yeah. inshallah, it, you know, God willing. There's also, Allah birid, if God wants it or if God wills it, right? So, okay. everything okay. is viewed through that prism. You're exactly right. So, it's a very fatalistic, very, right? There is an outside agent that determines if. This is going to happen or not? Got it. Yeah, 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 exactly. And you would have male authorities like big brothers, fathers, uh, community leaders, uh, always male, uh, imams, um, learned Islamic scholars, and so on, who would have most, uh, in most cases, a completely fixed uh, set of rules and laws and 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 systems uh, and ideas how you are allowed to behave and not to behave. And that means that there's very little experience. There's very little experience with inner locus of control. And there's very little space to explore inner locus of control, to, to dive in and find out how, what would you like to do? How, do, how did you actually influence your own life? Because you're constantly fed from the outside with what, what to do and not to do. So the whole mindset is, you could say, about outer locus of control. And while... Some Westerners, far from all, but may go overboard with guilt and so on. Muslims have a general tendency for uh, for developing uh, this, their world famous and I would say also quite embarrassing victim mentality because they would always blame others. And you hear it all the time. You hear it at the social office. You hear it in... It's the Jews. It's, it's the Jews. It's the evil Jews. Yeah, ultimately it's the Jews, <laughs> of course. Yeah. But you should say Jews as juice. Do you know this meme? Because there was a yeah, guy who put yeah. up, yeah. So it's evil juice. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The evil <laughs> juice. I didn't hear. It. Okay. Uh, yeah. So they blame the Jews. They blame imperialism. They blame all sorts of. Re- now, interestingly, by the way, uh, I have personal experience uh, with this locus of control <laughs> because I have a family member who I won't mention who he is, who is very much of that mindset where everything is due to external factors. So if uh, 
he starts a new business and the new business doesn't work, it can't be because he made a wrong business decision. It's because God didn't want it. It's because the customers are idiots. It's because people are conspiring against me. Now, the problem with that is that it doesn't provide the very necessary feedback loop for you to learn, right? Usually you take action A and you find out that I made the wrong choice. You learn from this mistake and then you take action B. But if every single time your failures could be explained by some outside agent, it doesn't really allow for growth and learning, correct? I completely agree. What what you would uh, learn most from is what, what it's all amazing. It's a question of how you see cause and effect, right? In the end. So if you yourself create your life, or if somebody else creates it for you, and I I hope I don't insult too many socialists uh, listening to the to your <laughs> wonderful program. I've got no socialists <laughs> that listen to me. <laughs> uh, but actually, you you have this you have similar traits inside socialism, which also tend to explain uh, what happens to the individual from a from a perspective of society. Of course, society has an influence on individuals, but if you want to to teach the individual to 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 be more happy, to be more successful, and so on, then it does not help that individual at all. On the counter, on the contrary, actually, if you blame somebody else, because whatever tools they would have had in their hands to change their life, you take it out of their hands, right. and you say it's up to somebody else. You cannot do anything about it yourself. You actually remove yeah. you you, re, you remove people's individual agency, right? I mean. Uh, the guy, the guy who rapes a woman, well, it wasn't him who took the action. It's because mm-hmm. she was, he was provoked by her attire, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if, if the guy attacks a Jewish guy, well, of course he was provoked because the guy was wearing a star of David and that was incitement to violence, right? And I've heard these a million times. I mean, I, I've interacted with these folks. I grew up in the Middle East. So every single action is never due to you having moral individual agency that causes you to make decisions. And I mean, again, that's a grotesque way to navigate through the world. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And it makes you a victim. It really does. And it makes you a victim. Right. All right. Let's move on to the fourth one. So intolerance. To... I just wanted to... Oh, please, please. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I forgot. But um, people with a, this kind of victim mentality meeting somebody else with a tendency to guilt, you can see what happens there. Perfect right. storm. And then you have, again, the very un, unhealthy cocktail or perfect storm or whatever you would call it. Right. Where you would have societies with that has a tendency to feel guilt, inviting in a lot of people who have the tendency to blame the people who haven't easily feel guilt, and you would have the first uh, the, you had the West, you know, trying to pay back from like now we hear here Merkel doing that all the yes. talks about oh, Germany yeah. was bad now they have to repent and <clears throat> and so on and, and then we have the situation we have today. I'm sure that this un, unhealthy you know perfect storm is of like two two types of psychology that fits very well together in an unhealthy way is beautifully said as a matter of fact I've written I've written a not written actually I've uh, produced a one of my sad truth clips uh, I titled it uh, uh, progressives pray at the altar of self flagellation you know what flagellation right when you hit yourself oh, you yeah. beat yourself right so I'm a bad person I'm a bad person I'm evil right and I mean that's exactly what you're exactly correct Angela Merkel is doing this right I mean she is collectively atoning like her whole society is atoning for the sins of two generations ago and by sort of going down an abyss of collective suicide hopefully we will atone for the bad things that we did a couple of generations ago it's 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 unbelievable uh, anything else about this point, or should we move to the fourth factor? No, we can move on. Yes. Okay. Yes, so the fourth one is intolerance toward outgroup members. Tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's it's again the meeting between the West and the Islamic, uh, let's say, Islamic culture and Islamic religion. Uh, where we here in the West, well, a lot of us don't feel religious anymore. Uh, some do, of course, uh, but in general. Some years ago, what what would define a good person would be if you go to church every Sunday or if you go to your synagogue every Saturday. Oh, isn't it Saturdays? It's uh, Saturdays, yes. Friday night <laughs> starts. Very good. <laughs> Sorry. 
and uh, you know I'm I'm not religious myself and <laughs> and but if you do that in your best Sunday's closes you know that your your neighbor would see it and the, the priest would see it and God would see it and you would you know you would be a good person and a lot of people lost their religion today but it doesn't mean that people are still looking for for ways of designing what is a good person I think many people need that uh, I think it's very natural for for human beings in general. And what is defining today for most people is to be open and tolerant. Right. If you're open and tolerant, you're a nice person. You know, you can say about yourself in your, if you're looking for a new date on the internet or something, I'm an open and tolerant type, right? Then you're all the girls will be coming, right? There you go. So, and and, uh, and uh, you should drive a Porsche. And you should drive uh, a Porsche. Yeah, a Porsche, big mustaches. I don't know what. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's, I wouldn't call it a new religion, but that's a new way of defining what is a good person. And I think that in some ways we've been too open and too tolerant. I think many are, uh, are realizing that now. And they also, I think we are realizing also more and more that Islam is not very tolerant. Actually, it's taught that the opposite is good. And inside Islam, you are a good person if you, if the, if you do not mix with the non-believers, if you do not marry the non-believers, if you do not live among the unbelievers, if you have a sort of skeptical view on unbelievers, maybe even an aggressive view on unbelievers, then you are a good person, then you're a good Muslim, because you're doing what the Quran tells you to do. Now let me stop you before you go on. I hate to have to do this preface. What we're not talking here about, we're not talking about individual Muslims, right? We can all point to, you know, thousands of individual Muslims that don't care about having animus to outgroup members who are very nice, who mix with Jews and Christians and atheists. But we're talking about what is expected of you in the context of what's codified in your religious books, right? So the it's fact so that individual Muslims decide to ignore that only mm -hmm. speaks about them being tolerant. It doesn't say anything about whether the codified words in the, in the book are tolerant or not correct it's important to say that yeah yeah yeah, yeah of course it needs to be said um, yeah so go on sorry go ahead yeah and then that's that's it and that's that's the meeting again you know have something you have something that is very tolerant that's very easily giving in and you have something very hard that does not give in that is not very soft as you could say and and you can easily imagine which way the osmotic or osmotic osmotic Osm pressure yes <laughs> fair, fair. I get what you mean. Yes. Yeah, sorry for my English, but you can imagine which ways, which way it goes. Yeah. And that's why again and again we see that um, uh, integration of Muslims very seldomly happen. Uh, it, of course, there are many cases, but it's still a, a, a tiny minority. And what, even though they live in their societies, uh, many most are born and raised here, have gone to West Danish schools, Canadian schools, and so on, but. In spite of that, it seems that our Western cultures are more integrate, more adapting and integrating into Islamic way of thinking than the other way. And that's that's and that's what's happening now in, in more and more areas around. Well, and I would so I would so let's 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 bring in some additional psychology. So if if you look at a healthy relationship, whether it be between two individuals, two friends, whether it be between a husband and a wife, whether it be between two nation states. It's where there is equity in the relationship, where there is reciprocity in the relationship, where there is compromise in the relationship. All of these mechanisms are some of the key ways by which we nurture, solidify a relationship, right? I invite you for your birthday to mark your day. You reciprocate and you invite me for mine. That's how we oil the relationship. What happens in the dynamic between Islam and the West is that it is very much one way. And therefore, what you end up having is, is inequity in the relationship. And what you end up having, in some sense, is a parasitic relationship, right? I mean, when you go to the, to the Muslim countries, please dress so that you don't offend them. When, they, when, when we are in the West, please don't do things so that you don't offend them. When, right? So I mean, that can't work, right? A, a, a healthy relationship is one where we both recognize our respective needs, right? Uh, if I am a messy person and you're a clean person and we live together, well, as a messy person, I have to learn how to improve myself so that I can take take care of your needs. Uh, that dynamic, regrettably, I think, is missing between Islam and the West, correct? Yeah, yeah, I agree partly, but 
maybe we see Islam differently, uh, but I th- I think it would be healthy to it shouldn't be a fifty fifty agreement when with in the meeting of uh, Islam and the West because uh, even just fifty percent of of Islamic influences is not, is not healthy. And here I think we should it would be healthy for our culture and for our yeah for our cultural psychology also to say that. No tolerance for intolerance. Absolutely, I'm, I'm, I can fully agree with you. So I didn't yeah. mean to apply that. So it shouldn't be a give and take here. It should simply be. A, they should meet something very hard, and then we will find out <laughs> if if they fi- if they feel that they would like to live here or not. And I guess one way that I would uh, draw an analogy is if if somebody comes to your house as a guest, right? In some cultures, you're expected to take off your shoes. In other cultures, you're not expected to take off your shoes. Now, as an individual who invites people to my house, it is my right, although I want to make you feel comfortable in my home, I have a right to say, look, in the context of my home, please, I expect you to take off your shoes. Or don't worry about it, wear your shoes. It would be very, uh, you know, unseeming, uh, very grotesque, if you'd like, uh, for a guest to say, no, I don't care if you don't, if you want me to take off my shoes, right. I will. I will keep my shoes on, and I right. will stamp my feet everywhere. Well, then probably yeah. you're not a welcome well, guest, correct? So, yeah. so my thinking is so. Just so that we be clear, that I didn't mean to imply that we have to meet fifty-fifty. My thinking yeah. is anybody is welcome to come to the West as long as they abide. As a, and so let me be stronger than whatever you said. One hundred percent to our values, right? So what I meant by the exchange is that if I go to Saudi Arabia, I should expect that I should abide by their rules. But when you come to here, I should expect you to abide by our rules and we shouldn't see an inch, right? So does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it's not it's not it's not enough just to take one off one shoe. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now in your in your so so these are some of the things that you've seen in your discussions and in your therapeutic work with Muslim and non-Muslim uh, young you know, criminals. Uh, have you found hope? In other words, have you been able to use your Western tools of psycho- psychology to break through some of these factors or is it pretty much impenetrable? Mm, I managed quite, I think we managed quite well there. Uh, I did um, that, I think. Around ninety or ninety-five percent of the Muslim clients like to 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 have me as a, their therapist. Wonderful. We did uh, mindfulness and relaxation training. We did uh, anger management, of course, and I was I developed a, a certain kind of therapy, special kind of therapy that was focusing very much on self responsibility, and they liked it. Um, T- tell us and- about that. How, how does that typically work? Because they they've been. They've been inculcated with a set of beliefs for, you know, 12 to 17 years at the time that they come to see you. And now you've got a very short time period to sort of uh, reverse some of these uh, mechanisms. How does it how does it work? How long does it take typically? When do you start seeing the light and the progress? Well, I would see, say, after eight meetings. Okay. You would you would see some signs that of some understanding, but the thing is that when they get back to their in group, uh, the the cultural and religious pressure to to not step step out of that group is exceedingly strong, and for for many Muslims in many Muslims uh, communities, it can mean even you know. Uh, that you get, you get beaten or you can sit you get sent back to Somalia to be re-educated into your religion and, and and culture so you don't integrate and so on so the consequences of following my, my advice could very easily be very dire right and they, right. on top of that they would typically they would lose I mean they would as I said if they would react uh, with if they would have handle the subject of anger differently. They could lose their status. They could lose their friends. They could, you know, even become somebody that uh, their former friends would uh, hunt violently uh, because they they show that they insult uh, the the religion and their culture by showing weakness. Right. Gotcha. Right. Okay. So let's move on. To, uh, there's there's quite a bit of a echo in my. Uh... When I'm speaking, but it's okay. Hopefully, it won't come out in the taping. Okay, so let's move on. So we've gotten a good sense of some of the 
key factors that you've been able to identify that define the difference between the Muslim criminal and the non-Muslim criminal. What I thought we'd do next is talk about a study that you quoted in uh, one of your articles by, I think, a Danish linguist named Tina Magard, uh, where she actually did a content analysis of the uh-huh. texts, if I'm not mistaken, in the Quran and the Hadith. And I'll ask you in a second to comment about her study because I wasn't able to get the actual study. Uh, but there's a very, very nice quote or powerful quote that I'd like to uh, to read, which you had translated from, from Danish. So this is her, you're translating her words. So, but it is striking how much space these passages, she's, she's referring to murderous passages, take up in the Islamic text and how much they focus on an us and them logic in which the infidels and the apostates are characterized as dirty, rotten, criminal, hypocritical, and dangerous. It is also striking how much these texts demand that the reader fight the infidels, both with words and with the sword. Incidentally, uh, Bill Warner, are you familiar with Bill Warner? Yeah, he's a fantastic man. Yeah. I know him from my readings. I know he's amazing. Yeah, he was on my show. So Bill Warner, I, I guess, has done something very similar to uh, Professor Magard in that he has spent the last almost 15 years or so doing a content analysis of many texts, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Hadith, uh, the Sirah, the Quran, uh, to, to, to look at whether these books preach peace and tolerance or enmity and so on. Uh, so, so can you tell us a bit more about the study since I wasn't able to track the original? Is there anything else that you could add? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, first, uh, whoever see your show here, I would strongly advise to read uh, Bill Warner's books, especially the one called Sharia for the Non-Muslim. It's very informative. It's very important to understand all this. But, okay, back to Tina Mago. Um, uh, well, she's a linguist. She's not even studying religion or anything, but so she's st- studying language. Right. And she sat down with a group of, of, uh, of research helpers, assistants, for three years uh, in her PhD, and she took the 10 biggest religions in the world. I, I don't know, Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, obviously, and so on and so on. And they sat down and meticulously counted all incitement, all statements that incite violence. And and then they, she came to the conclusion that you just uh, you just uh, read, right. uh, yeah. And um, oh, but Tina, let me let yeah. me let me play the devil's advocate. Not let me play the the, the bullshitter apologist. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Tina is a white woman from Denmark. She doesn't know Arabic. She didn't study at Al Azhar University. She doesn't understand the context. She doesn't get Arab philology. How do we get through those? She's more like you would call her a word math- math- mathematician. Right. Right. She counts the words, right? She counts incitements to violence, and actually, she's she's quite acknowledged here now in Denmark. She's she's been advising uh, different Danish governments and so on. She's she's she's, a, she's a generally acknowledged by the established. Uh, and incidentally, she learned Arabic. She does know Arabic, right? Yeah, I think she knows some. Yeah. As, as far as I can read from her reports and so on. Yeah. So that was a conclusion that Islam is very special in the way that it uh, it condones violence to a much stronger degree than any other religion. And I would like to. To, to get into that, because as working as a suppression psychologist, of course you wonder, why are 7 out of 10 of the inmates, why do they have Muslim background? We all know that Islam preaches jihad, meaning in our terminology we would call it terror, but we would call it jihad. But, but what about the crime? Not the terrorism, but the crime. And from talking with more than 100 Muslim clients, I reached the conclusion that the the strong negative view on non-Muslims in the Quran, in the Sunnah, in the Hadith, and so on, influences Muslims' view on non-Muslims. And if you speak about non-Muslims the way you just uh, quoted from from Mako, that they are rotten, that they are bad, that they are you know, treacherous, and, and so on, the psychological step, which is normally very big when it comes to harming other beings from your own species, becomes shorter. Right. It becomes easier to harm some another human being. You and you see it. You know it's been done. You know every nation that was in war, more or less, almost every nation that was in war, real war. Uh, they the, the the way that they prepare their soldiers and their own their own citizens is to start to make propaganda about the enemy. Well, you dehumanize but, the enemy, right? 
you actually you dehumanize them, exactly. and that makes it more easy to go to war, to kill, to defend your own country by violent means and so on. And this is exactly what, as I say, I would say, seen from a psychological point of view, this is what Islam do to Muslims. They destroy their um, humanistic view on non-Muslims. Right now, so if 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 that is true, then the empirical findings should be that if we were to look at the stats of Muslim on Muslim crime versus Muslim on non-Muslim crime, adjusting for you know populations and all that, uh, we should see a huge difference. In other words, we should see that most of the victims of Muslim criminality are likely to be non-Muslims. Correct. The victims of their crimes. Yeah, the victims. Uh, yeah, other- yeah, yeah. It's- Except for two cases, if it concerns their own women right. or rivaling gangs, true. Yeah, then, you, then you would then you, at least I never heard of from my clients. They was robbing, stabbing, have a few terrorists also raping, you know. But un, unless it was their own women or rivaling gangs, it, their victims would never be other Muslims. Right, got it. So the in-group, out-group thing is very strong. And then we come back to this thing with tolerance and intolerance and so on. Well, as a matter of fact, there is a hierarchy of sort of impure uh, sources in Islam. It's called nejis, right? And so, you know, there's semen and blood and urine and vomit, whatever whatever it is. And uh, the kuffar is, is on there, the non-Muslims. So... So in the list of sort of disgusting things, which include the semen and the blood and the urine, the feces is the non-Muslim. So that's not really a very tolerant and peaceful outlook. Now, of course, wow. the problem is, is that the concept of is that the concept of mushrikun or something like that. Uh, well, mushrikun just means uh, it, it's a it's a term for uh, like the hypocrites, oh, right? Like uh-huh. uh, oh, okay. nejis is like the term for you know, something that is impure in the same way that, uh-huh. for example, if you, you shouldn't have a dog's saliva touch you when you're going to prayer, because that sort of makes you impure, right? And so there is sort of a list of items that are uh-huh. considered impure, and the kuffar uh-huh. is on that list. Uh, okay, yeah, but that explains a lot. Then. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, the, the reason why people oftentimes recoil when they hear this because in their daily experiences, they meet millions of Muslims, well, maybe not millions, but many Muslims who don't abide by this, who are perfectly nice, who are lovely, who are peaceful, who are warm, who are hospitable. So that's the disconnect that people have because we live our lives through our personal narratives. So if my personal narrative is that I've met a thousand Muslims, every one of which was lovely and kind, then it's difficult to reconcile that personal reality with the things that we're talking about, right? Mm. That's, I think, one of the most impenetrable parts of having this discussion, because one can always point to endless examples that violate what we're talking about, correct? Mm. Yeah, of course. Most people who just, I mean, I have Muslim friends, very good Muslim friends, very very strong and very impressive persons, both women and men. Uh, but they are not the way they are because of Islam. Exactly. But exactly. in spite of Islam. Right. It, it's like the, the, the analogy that I would give, excuse me for interrupting you, the analogy that I would give is if I am Jewish and I eat pork, that's not a reflection of the fact that Judaism allows pork. It's, it's the fact that I am Jewish who happens to ignore the fact that I'm not supposed to eat pork. Right? Yeah, and pork... And, and bacon makes these fantastic. What's the point of life without bacon, right? Makes no sense. It's illogical. Uh, all right, let's move on to some other ones. Uh, now, this we sort of touched upon when we we're discussing therapy. Oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Of course, Muslims are just people like everybody else. You know, they just, but many of them are influenced by an ideology, a culture, a religion that that makes them think that things are some for them some things are normal that we would consider criminal or not humanistic. But they are just as much people as we are. I meet people just like you do, I guess, who think that all the Muslims they met are nice people, they have a democratic worldview, they see women as completely equal to men and 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 they may drink a beer, eat bacon's uh, Sunday morning, and so on. But but the Muslims that they meet is 
the Muslim you would meet on your workplace. And that's not the majority of Muslims who go there. So that's my point there. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that makes so, sense. Let's okay, let's yeah. move on to, uh, well, you have a, a quote here on immigration. And I think it's, I want to read it uh, because it's sort of part of a greater discussion that now many, many Western countries are having. If anything, the presidential race in the U.S. is involving this issue with Donald Trump, with the things that he said about you know, Islamic immigration. We have this issue in Canada where our new prime minister is trying to uh, speed up the rate at which uh, immigrants and refugees come from uh, Islamic countries. Uh, so here's what you said. And so your, your, prime minister, your prime minister sounds like our prime ministers back in the 80s. Or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Except, <laughs> except, except that our prime minister has much nicer hair than yours. So I think that yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, very good. <laughs> uh, so this is a quote that you, you, you recently wrote in one of your articles, and I will try to put the link to each of these sources at the bottom of the clip when, when it's posted. So you wrote, stop Muslim immigration and cut citizenships to resident Muslim immigrants and refugees. Non-Western immigrants and refugees who have not yet attained Western citizenship should only be able to continue their life in our Western countries as long as they can support themselves and are not convicted of any violent crimes. You want to expand on that? Because, of course, when somebody reads this, uh, clearly this must mean that you are a neo-Nazi, you're part of the Nazi party, you're a racist, you're a bigot, you're an Islamophobe. So how do we counter that rebuttal? I would say that any culture, how no matter how small or how big, a family is also a culture. You know, uh, like three, four, five people in a family is also a culture. Uh... My workplace is a culture. We have our own culture at my work. A country, of course, has a culture. A city has a culture. And any culture, for any culture, there's a limit of how many individuals you can take in from a different culture and be able to absorb them into your culture. Or, or, yeah, or to absorb them into your culture. You could maybe have uh, one funny uncle living in your family and still sort of survive as a, <laughs> as a, as a family. You may be able to make a fusion between two workplaces as long as you are very tolerant and open to different workplace cultures. And um, you may be able to have a certain amount of people from a completely different culture in your city. But at some level, too many funny uncles in your sleeping on your couch, <laughs> how you would say it, right? Uh, you would start to have problems. And then you would just not just have a Let's, let's say integration, but you would start to have different cultures clashing instead. And I think that's how I see it. And I, but I think that most places in the West, uh, we have reached that limit uh, some years ago. And, and I would say now it's not only about helping people to get a, from a, from a, from, let's say from Arabic countries to get a good job or to kick, take, to make sure they're in safety. Now it's evolving into a, demographic and social experiment of on president on pre, on president scale and i don't think we can i don't think we can afford it it's already now i'm sure that most people agree that it's uh, that it, it, we will not manage to integrate all these people here so what we should look for instead is win-win solutions i don't say we should put pe people you know in a worse position uh, or anything like that but we need to find situations where everybody benefits and I hear, I would, my suggestion is that people in the Middle East who are, you know, who are in danger, of course we should help them. I think we, we owe them that as, as fellow human beings on this planet. But we have to do it in a way so not, not only they benefit, but we also, uh, uh, you know, can, can, uh, does, does not come out of that situation with, with less surplus. And here finding places for them camps or building new cities or new areas and so on, where they can be safe in their local area, where they know their culture, the weather, the language and so on, would be much more productive than, than taking them here. First of all, because of economic reasons. For one person that we take in here, we could help maybe 20 or 50 people in, a, in, in their own region. And secondly, and I know that because I work with, uh, with refugees in my daily work as a psychologist, it's actually, for most refugees, it's very traumatizing to move to our countries because things are so different. They may see the money, they may see the, 
the welfare, the safety, and the, the friendly people, and so on. But when they come, the the step from living, having, having lived in Iraq or Somalia or wherever, and moving to Denmark or Canada is an immense step, and it takes years, it takes decades for them to overcome this, and it's highly tra- traumatizing for many of them. And I think we we are doing them a what's it called a bad favor? How would you call a, it? A disservice. Yeah, yeah, okay, a disservice by telling them that come here, you will be, you will feel much better here. Right. Uh, maybe they will, but uh, but in most cases, it's a lose-lose solution. Well, I mean, let's just look at uh, a very simple example. I think until very recently, I don't know if the numbers have changed, uh, the Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, Oman, uh, I don't think they had accepted a single uh, Syrian mm-hmm. refugees. And then when you would ask them, they, without any political correctness, they would tell you some of the reasons why they are not accepting their co-religionists, which mm-hmm. are, they share the religion, they share the culture, they share the language, and yet they mm-hmm. refuse to open their borders. Yet somehow Germany lets in one million. And the argument is, well, you racist Nazis, why don't you let in more, right? I mean, but by which moral compass is it incumbent on a culture like Germany to completely alter its culture while Saudi Arabia doesn't lift a single finger. I mean, it just simply can't make any sense, right? Mm. Well, I think it makes sense to some people in Germany and in Canada and in your government and our government and so on. I think they they simply dismiss these countries as barbaric. So we they, they, are not, they don't see them as having the same obligations as we have because we are less barbaric. And it is, I guess, somehow true, but it's also maybe a little bit racist. Well, I was going to say, if anything, <laughs> that's racist to say that, right? Uh, yeah. 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 Or if not racist, then it's at least as saying uh, our culture is better than yours, which I would agree with, but I'm not sure that they would uh, like to say that, but that's actually what they're saying. Well, I, we, I, I, yeah, I think I, they do. I think that most most of the intelligentsia would actually disagree with what you said because they're very much driven by a a, a nasty virus of cultural and moral relativism, right? Uh, which basically says that you you should exactly not uh, create hierarchies of cultures, right? Every culture has its own worth. Every culture has its own way of knowing, its own way of doing. And who are we to judge the other culture? That's exactly what's happened with. Uh, the political philosophy of multiculturalism, which actually the father of our current prime minister was the big mover of that ideology in Canada, right? That's what allowed people to come to Canada and live in ghettos because we didn't force people to say, no, you now, sure, you could still be Lebanese and you could still be Armenian and you could still be Nigerian. Sorry? Yeah, yeah, I'm just thinking, you know, for, for a culture that where honor is so important, it is traumatizing. It is very unpleasant to come from a from another country, let's say Iraq, where you sort of have your status, you have your position in society, and you end up, let's say, in Canada or Denmark or somewhere else, and then you're so, so suddenly you're the lowest man on the totem pole, right? Because right. you have you don't know the language, you don't you're not really able to educate yourself and your kids, and you maybe not even able to earn your own money and so on. And it's I, I, I'm I'm quite convinced that it's not so psychologically beneficial for them to come here. Right. I would rather try to really make a a, a, a nice situation, nice safe situation for them where where in a region where they feel more, much more home. Now you now that Denmark would be, that would be much, that would be much more compassionate I think. Right, gotcha. Uh, now in Denmark the Danish government has, has actually been somewhat more proactive in that now they've started a sort of aggressive if I can call it aggressive repatriation program, right? Maybe you could tell mm-hmm. us a bit about that. And how it's going? Well, actually, it's not very aggressive in the oh. way that it's voluntary. Okay. And uh, many of them, they, they get the money for, for moving back to Iraq, but then many of them come back again, and they don't have to repay the money. <laughs> ah, okay, so it's not very aggressive. <laughs> it's, not, it's not very aggressive, no. So the idea is to not only, so in a sense, but I mean, uh, conceptually, the idea is to not only halt immigration, but to sort of reduce the existing number of immigrants currently in Denmark, by creating favorable environment for some of these folks to voluntarily move back. Is that is that the idea? Yeah, I would say that, yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's move on to uh, maybe our last topic and then we could wrap it up. 
Uh, at one point in one of your articles, uh, you have a very sort of powerful quote. Uh, let's drill down that quote. So it's, you, you basically say, Islam has to adapt if it wants to be legal according to our constitutions. Now, when you say it has to adapt, what cues in my brain is it has to somehow reform itself, which leads us into a greater conversation of uh, what many so-called Muslim reformers are currently trying to do, which is to try to find a way to reinterpret the text so that some of the sting and venom is taken out of the Islamic doctrines. Now, this is something that's been tried before and that has failed for all sorts of reasons. So when you say something like this, it has to adapt. What do you mean? Are you referring to reform? And if so, do you think that that's possible? Yeah, of course, I'm referring to reform because, uh, yeah, there's so many things in the scriptures that are clearly illegal, uh, you know, like beheading people, beating women, uh, exterminating the Jews, um, taking over the world with a jihad, violent jihad, and so on. It's, it's, and uh, I'm sure that many, many, many passages, like you read also from, from Tina Mago, our very excellent researcher here from Denmark, uh, I hope you will, imp- uh, maybe you, we can clone her, send one to Canada, you can invite her to give a speech or something. <laughs> Sounds maybe good. you should uh, make an interview with her, actually. Okay. I'm sure okay. she speaks English. I'll reach out. I could I'll get her out. your contact, I'm sure. Okay. Uh, but, but I'm sure great parts of the Quran and the Sunnah would also be categorized as, as hate speech, actually. Um, so, of course, you would need to take out many parts of, of, of the Islamic scriptures in order to make it uh, yeah, legal to, to, to practice fully in our societies. But how do you do that? I mean, how do you, yeah. how do you tangibly do that? Is it that you... you... I know in, in, in Austria, they have they made a new law uh, one or two years ago that uh, the mosques are only allowed to preach from a certified German translation of the Quran. Okay. And I think that's a good start because that means we preach in German. That means the police can listen into what, what's going on and, and, and so on. But more than that, if you could make a certified version of that in English, Danish, and so on, where you take out all the criminal verses, I know the Quran would probably shrink a bit. It, it's uh, going to be a small <laughs> book if you do that. <laughs> but but I think that would be a good start, actually. I think that would be a good start. Um, and then say, you, if you preach this, you're sure you won't go to prison because we, will, we are keeping an eye on you. And you can, But if you use this, you're on the safe side. And then, of course, we need... Uh, I'm sh- we are working with the right now in Denmark, uh, let's say, a national authorities or on a state level that are that are finding out where are the radical mosques, where are... Okay, I'm going to start. Okay. Sorry about that, guys. Technical difficulties. Take it away, Nikolai. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was what would be my main... Uh, my first move, at least, to make a certified Quran and certified Sunnah. I know there's a lot of books, but at least start with the Quran, where Islamic preachers... Uh, know that this from this version they can preach without breaking any laws. They would not, they would not uh, incite any kind of violence. There would be no hate speech and so on. So, making official translations that are sort of uh, cleaned from illegal, you know, criminal, criminal, criminal incitements, that would be a good start. And then a national authority of some kind that is able to, let's say, track down and analyze where the the sources of radical Islam. You know, I I, I certainly love the, the the possibility of doing what you're suggesting. Sorry, there's a lot of echo. It's my, my words are coming back at me. But anyways, uh, I, I'm not very optimistic about this uh, possibility because, uh, you know, if, if one really understands the contents of what's in the Quran, what's in the Hadith, what's in the Sirah, it's very difficult to see how you could expunge all those parts and still retain a, a, a religion called Islam. It's just, it, it's right. very, it's very, very difficult to see how that's possible. I mean, I'll just give you an example. If you look at Sharia oh. law, Sharia law looks at crimes as somebody, as somebody who studies criminality, it looks at how you punish somebody as a function of whether the perpetrator and the victim are Muslim or not. That is encoded in Allah's law. So, I mean, how do you completely change all these things? It's kind of like saying, I want to reform uh, football so that you no longer use goals 
and you no longer use a ball and you no longer kick. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's, yeah, I don't know. Hey, guys, sorry for the technical trouble. Uh, Nikolai's phone is acting strangely. Uh, so I was saying basically that if you took all of the football rules so that you, you got rid of the balls and you got rid of kicking with your feet and you got rid of the goals, then it wouldn't be called football anymore. So I like the idea of trying these things, but I'm not very optimistic that they will work. Are you? I think we should give it a try. I think we should say this is what is legal. And if they protest, then we will have to take it from there. I see. All right. So uh, any projects that you are currently working on that the public might not be familiar with at this point that you'd like to maybe promote any new initiatives or new things that you're excited about that you'd like to share with our uh, viewing audience? I would again really like to advertise uh, Bill Warner. He's excellent. Watch his videos, read his books, visit his homepage, uh, Center for uh, the Study, study of Buddhism. Right. And there's a lot of great videos there. Um, and if you live in Canada, there's one great blog called letsheedisblog.com, I believe. Yeah. And it's great stuff, both international and for, for Canadians. Are you planning on coming to uh, North America, maybe to Montreal anytime? I would love to come. We can find the time. Uh, well, if, if, you, if you do, dinner is on me, buddy. Uh, yeah. Keep up your great work. It was a real pleasure chatting with you. Uh, I really thought that it was a, a wonderful opportunity to bring you on because you're bringing a completely different perspective to this discussion, right? I mean, you're working deep into the, in the Danish penal system. So thank you for your wonderful work. And let's hope that you do have a lot of positive influence both with the non-Muslim and the Muslim criminals. Yeah. Uh, and keep up your great work. It was a real honor and pleasure chatting with you, Nicolai. Yeah, it was fun and a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Stay with me. I'm, thank you so much. Uh, stay with me. I'm going to stop.